0: The unexpected shift to remote instruction during the spring 2020 semester in response to a global pandemic disrupted established teaching patterns, forcing many faculty to rapidly learn new tools and techniques of engaging their students. In this episode, we discuss what we've learned from the sudden shift to remote instruction and how we can better prepare for the uncertainties of the fall semester. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning.
1: This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist.
0: And Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer.
1: Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Betsy Berry, the Executive Director of the Center for Advancement of Teaching at Wake Forest University. In 2017, she won with Justin Essery, the Professional and Organizational Development Network in Higher Education's Innovation Award for their Course Workload Estimator.
0: Welcome,
2: Betsy. Thanks, I'm happy to be here.
0: Today's teas are,
2: I am not having tea, but I am having a raspberry lime spindrift. I actually would love to have tea, but I just didn't get downstairs in time. So I have my spindrift here. That sounds good.
1: I have an English breakfast.
0: And I have oolong tea today.
2: are oh, you switching it up a little.
1: Sounds exciting.
0: <laughs> Amazon helps. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Betsy, we invited you here today to talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing at Wake Forest to help Faculty Prepare for Pandemic Teaching. Can you talk a little bit about what the Center for Advancement of Teaching's approach has been and what it will look like leading into summer and fall courses?
2: Sure, I can talk more about what we've done, sort of what we're planning for the future is still in process, as I'm sure it is for many institutions. One of the great things about Wake Forest is that our Center for the Advancement of Teaching is not the only office that has been working with faculty and faculty development and digital technology issues academic technology, et cetera. So one of the first things that we did when we knew we were transitioning to online or transitioning to remote teaching, let's be specific there, is that we pulled together the offices that were adjacent to our office. So we pulled together the Office of Online Education, the Office of Academic Technology, which is an information systems, RIT wing at Wake Forest. And also we had a number of librarians who did work on digital pedagogy. So we pulled all of us together and created a kind of super team that would support faculty. And that was really helpful to do that really quickly because it expanded our reach, the numbers of folks who could work with faculty and integrated it. So faculty didn't have to go to a million different places. There was one place that they could go. We had about 850 faculty or so that were teaching that we had to work with. And there were about 10 of us on our team. So it's a better ratio than some schools, but it's still a pretty not ideal ratio. And so we tried to streamline things as quickly as possible. So like many schools, we created a Keep Teaching website that had resources, but we also created a blog that had daily updates. So every day they could subscribe to an email and get it in their inbox every morning that would have daily updates, but also resources, tips, things we had heard from faculty, et cetera, that turned out to be really helpful. We're still keeping that going and it's been helpful as they've been teaching. We also though really wanted to encourage them to share their expertise with each other. So that week that we had off to help our faculty prepare, we did a series of open labs where we were there to answer questions, but they could also share with each other what they were doing. And then sort of unexpectedly, a few things that we did that have gone really well is that those of us that are on social media saw some faculty talking on Facebook about this and we thought, hey, let's just create a Facebook group. And that group has been Incredibly active. We have like over 300 faculty that are in that group now and some of our professional staff, and it's been a way of communicating. We've tried to communicate outside of Facebook for those who don't like Facebook, but certainly it's been a wonderful way of building community that I think will live on after this. And so that has been nice. And then, of course, our one on one consultations that we've always done, but we set up an easier, streamlined system for requesting a consultation and it would cycle through all 10 of us and sync up with our calendars. And so we found that to be really successful and as successful as we could be in this trying situation. Summer and fall, a much more interesting wrinkle. That's what we've been working on. Once we got faculty up and ready to go, we now could transition to thinking about how are we gonna support faculty in the summer and fall. And One of the things we've been saying all along, many institutions have, is that what we did in the spring where we had one week to transition is not really robust online teaching. At the same time, we don't necessarily have the staff and resources to transition all of our courses online for the summer in a robust way, but we have more than a week. So we're trying to hit some sort of middle sweet spot where it's not exactly what we would ideally do with online education at Wake Forest, but it's better and more intentional and takes more time than what we did for remote teaching. So currently we're planning for those who have volunteered to teach in the summer to run a three week course for them to take asynchronously online to learn more about teaching online. And then we're also gonna offer all 10 of us to do one-on-one consultations and some minimal instructional design work with them. Fall is still up in the air. (laughs) We're not really sure what's gonna happen with the fall But I think we'll probably know in the next few weeks what we're planning.
0: It's interesting to see how similar the approaches of various institutions have become. And a lot of it, I think, is social media made it easier to share some of those thoughts. We also have a Facebook group. We've also done lots of meetings. And we've had a number of people working with us from our campus technology services and providing support and workshops. And it's been nice to see everyone come together to help so many faculty make this surprise transition that they never expected and didn't always entirely welcome. But they've been really positive in terms of how people have
2: approached it.
1: I agree. One of the things that I saw you guys doing that I thought was really interesting was Ask the Cat. Can you talk a little bit about that program and how it worked?
2: The name of our center is the Center for the Advancement of Teaching. We still haven't decided at Wake Forest if we want to do CAT or CAT, but we often joke, eh, cat would be funny because then we could have all these funny cat jokes associated with that. But outside of the blog, we started getting some really simple questions that we realized would be helpful for everyone to hear the answer to. And early on, a few people asked some questions, and we said, can we turn this into a sort of Dear Abby letter that we can then publish responses to, really quick responses on our blog? And they were happy to do that. And then we turned it into a formal themed series in the blog where people can submit online, ask the CAT questions, and they can do it with a pseudonym so there's no stupid questions any sort of challenges they have. And it's gone pretty well. And we hope to continue to do that because I think we've seen on the Facebook pages, I'm sure you all have as well, is that often there are many similar questions. And so when they see us answering another question, faculty get ideas and say, oh, I could do that. Now that makes sense.
1: Seems like the ability to have a little bit of anonymity there in asking the question might allow for some questions that really need to be asked to actually be asked.
2: Yeah, sometimes they'll just ask a simple tech question and we try to expand it a little bit beyond that to say, "Okay, that's great. Here, I'm going to give you your answer. But before I do, let's talk a little bit about pedagogy and how you might think about universal design or something unrelated to the specific tech question.
0: Rebecca mentioned that you had won an award for your work on Rice's Course Workload Estimator, which is something we recommend to our faculty regularly and people find it really helpful. How would you recommend people interact with that tool during situations like the pandemic, especially for people who are adjusting very rapidly from one mode of instruction to another?
2: Yeah, so one of the things I shared with Rebecca before we started is this actually is really great timing for you to ask about this because Justin Esri, who's the co-author, co-creator with me and I, he's my husband, actually, we did it together. One of the things we're thinking about doing in the next couple of weeks is actually revising it in a number of ways. We've had a long-standing interest in doing it, just haven't had occasion to do that. And there are some changes we're gonna make that aren't specifically about online, but one of the changes we're hoping to do is to actually create some categories that are related to traditional online assignments. And again, these are gonna be guesstimates. I always tell people, this is an estimator, it's not perfect, it's just our best guesses. But to create some estimates of how long would it take to have a discussion board if they have two posts, 500 words, sort of things that we're used to assigning in online education to helpfully help in that regard. But one of the things that I think is, the reason this estimator is important is one of the things we've seen, and I'm sure you all have seen as well, after about the second week of remote teaching is that some students started to complain about workload, how much work these new remote courses were. And I think part of that is because faculty were incorporating more accountability measures into their courses. So they may have been expecting that work, but never were really holding the students to account to do that work. And so now students actually have to do and show their work. And so whereas before they might have been able to just show up at a lecture, study on their own time or not study, as the case may be, not do the reading as the case may be. Now if they're having weekly reading reflections, they actually have to do the reading. And that significantly shifts how much work they feel they have to do. So that's putting it on the students, but it's certainly the case then part of the reason we made the estimator is that as faculty, we're not really good at estimating how much time our work takes. And that's true in a traditional setting. True for me, that's why I created the estimator. I am a humanist and so I assign a lot of reading and I never really knew like how much time it would take them to read and so that's what motivated me to investigate the research on that. I think it's particularly true that we're not good at estimating how much time things will take when it's a new assignment or activity that we've never assigned and that's what we see in this scenario. Many faculty are introducing completely new activities and assignments that they've never done before and they often might think, oh yeah, I should give them discussions in a discussion board without taking into account how much time that will take. Or, oh, I really want them to make sure that they connect with me each week in this way or I need to make sure we have these office hours and then they need to watch these videos but since they're watching the videos now we can have some discussion in class because the videos are no longer part of the class time and so we think we're pretty good at sort of keeping track of that but it turns out one of the things we found with our estimator is that when we asked faculty to play around with it that it, we were often very wrong faculty were often very wrong about even their own estimates about how much time they thought they were expecting of students so I think it can be a valuable check it's not perfect it's not exact but it can be a valuable check on our intuitions about how much time we're expecting of students particularly with some of these unique activities that we're asking them to do online. And I also think there are some really creative strategies by our friends in online education to help us think about a traditional assignment and how to make it a little bit more efficient, discussion board a little bit less time intensive, that we can talk to faculty about as well.
0: With the pandemic, I would think some of those calculations based on online classes where people intentionally were in online classes might be a somewhat different situation when people are in households where there's more people in the room, perhaps, or where they're sharing network access or where there's more distractions and noise than the people who had intentionally chosen the online environment.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really thoughtful insight. Absolutely. I think we'll hopefully get to talk about this later in our conversation today is that there are a variety of changes that take place here they are not just about the modality, but thinking about our student situation, how long it takes to learn the technology if they've never learned it as well. Like how do I upload this? How do I take an exam? And so if we give them a certain amount of time for an exam, recognizing that they didn't choose to do it, they also don't know the technology as well. And so how do we account for those adjustments as well, for sure?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think all of those little extra things that now students have to do, including learning the technology or just getting used to a new system or a new rhythm, they all take time. In a semester, we think that's what the first couple of weeks of the semester are, but then like this semester we had two
2: sets of those. Absolutely, and I mean, the fact that we are still sending out posts, giving suggestions, means that some faculty are still changing things. They're still adding new things because they wanna try something new or something didn't work. And normally we encourage that, but in this scenario, it's particularly challenging for our students if new things keep getting piled on over five courses or four courses that they're taking.
1: If we're thinking in a traditional context where there's in-class and out-of-class work, and now if everything is remote, How do we think about dividing up that time or what kind of time they should be spending on what kind of activities?
2: I think this is a really good question. And again, my colleagues in online education who think about this question a lot have more subtle distinctions to make about this. But I actually was just having a conversation last week about what accreditors require and how to think about quote unquote contact hours in an online environment. And incidentally, one of the things we found actually unexpectedly with our course workload estimator again the motivation was for me as a humanist to basically answer the faculty question of how much reading should i assign it was a very narrow purpose how much reading should i assign but what we found is that the biggest usage were people who were instructional designers and online programs who were interested in this question of how much time is faculty contact hours is it actually comparable to the face-to-face courses so it is connected and so i've been talking about this a lot and one of the things that at least the federal guidance suggests is that one credit hour is about 45 hours of work for our students. So over 15 weeks, One credit hour, you do two hours out of class for every hour in class over 15 weeks. And so it's about 45 hours. They don't really enforce it. It's a complicated question or a comparable amount of work, but that's an easy way of thinking about it. It's about 45 hours of work for a single credit hour. And then 15 of that is expected to be in the presence of the professor. So traditionally, that would mean 15 of that, you go to class, 30 of it's at home. That's the traditional model that we think of. But in online, of course, it's different because everything is at home. So one thing you could just say, well, everything's at home. So then the professor never needs to be engaged. Like, you can just say, I'm going to record all my lectures, put them all up, and then I'll grade your exam at the end. Of course, we know that that's not good pedagogy, online or otherwise. And so I think the way to think about this is, of the 45 hours of work your students are doing, are at least 15 of those hours somehow engaging with the faculty member. But that could be, for example, a discussion board where the faculty member is in the discussion board engaging and providing feedback. It could be one-on-one sessions where you work on a paper together with the student in an office hour. There are a lot of ways you can imagine faculty presence and engagement that don't have to be, let's have a synchronous video conference session. But there are some good reasons for that, too, particularly in the remote environment where students want some continuity to what they've already done. But I think that there should be more flexibility, and I think there often is in good online programs, about what counts as those contact hours, but without just saying, oh, as long as we have a video, that counts as a contact hour.
1: Along these lines, do you have any advice about designing learning activities and assessments when we have no idea what the modality might be in the fall?
2: That's a good question. I am sure that many other people have been asking that question. I myself am teaching this semester, so it has been interesting in helping all of the faculty, but also teaching myself and figuring out what's working and what's not. And I think Derek Bruff at Vanderbilt had a... I actually liked this language that he shared initially about creating pivotable courses. He ended up changing it, didn't like that one as much, but I actually like that, like your course could easily pivot. And I think for me, one of the things that I saw was that my course, even though it was a face-to-face course, heavy discussion course, seminar course, I had built in already some asynchronous activity outside of class. They were already annotating the text via hypothesis, which is a really wonderful tool for those of you that don't know about that in the humanities or any text heavy discipline. Hypothesis is wonderful. In that sense, they were already used to and had learned how to annotate their text digitally in the face-to-face course. When we transitioned, it was easy. Okay, we're gonna keep doing that. And that was already built into the course. I also think getting all of our courses so far as possible into a digital environment, whether that's an LMS or Google or whatever you prefer, can be an easy way too, because a lot of the time we spent with faculty was just getting them to like, oh, how do you collect assignments? Well, okay, let's get you into the LMS. Here's how you collect assignments. Here's a way that you could think about sending a message to students that's not just through email. And so at the very least, if we all get in our LMS or another digital environment, if you don't like the LMS, and then think of some activities and engagement that our students can engage in at home with each other or perhaps with you that's outside of the regularly scheduled class time, you're already making it easier to shift. But I also think one thing, and we may come to this when we talk about grading, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is I had to scrap one of my activities in my course when we transitioned to remote, and I've been thinking about the particularly challenging situation for those faculty who had a semester-long assignment. So luckily, my assignment was at the second part, and so I was like, ah, well, they haven't started it yet. We can just do something else. (laughs) Because that would be difficult but if you have many semester-long assignments that disruption can be really difficult but if you could organize your course another way to make it pivotable is to organize it in modules like really intentionally not just in canvas but actually say okay we're going to work on this unit as a self-contained assignment that'll be done in two weeks. So that way, if we have to take off in week three, you're already finished with that assignment and that module. And then there's one module that's remote, and then if we come back, hey, we get to start another module that might be face to face. And so it gives you some flexibility if you design your course in a more modular way to prepare for disruptions, rather than thinking about it as multiple whole semester long assignments.
1: It's interesting that you say that, Betsy, because I'm not teaching this semester, but I'm planning for my fall class. And I teach web design primarily, and I was thinking about teaching agile design. So I decided that I would teach it in an agile fashion, which is really what you're describing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, great. That's smart.
1: I've started mapping out what that would look like in these little sprints to work on a larger project. And we would do maybe two projects, one that was collaborative and one that was individual, but in sprints that would rotate between the two projects. So I've been mapping out what that might look like. And my real reasoning for that was... Specifically, if something was going to be disrupted or if it was going to be online, I thought it would be a little easier to help students through the project if I had these clear checkpoints and finishes to things before starting something new.
2: One of the things that made me start thinking this way, and this goes back to the question of how we're preparing for fall and all the scenarios that all the institutions are thinking about. Beloit College just decided that they were going to actually teach their fall semester in two seven and a half week sessions, essentially. So basically students will take two courses for the first seven and a half weeks and then two courses for the second seven and a half weeks. Certainly it's a lot of work on the part of faculty to transition their 15 week course to a seven and a half week course, but it also is creative because it means if we have to start late, only two classes are disrupted rather than all four. And if you have to leave in the middle, only two classes are disrupted So there is a way in which it allows for some flexibility. You could even be as dramatic and radical as going to a block schedule like they have at Colorado College or other schools where they have one course at a time. That would be more work for our faculty and may not work as well. But I did like the idea of thinking, okay, let's just prepare for our face-to-face courses to be seven and a half weeks as an institution. And then it's an opportunity to experiment with that kind of pedagogy anyway, because some schools have May terms and other things. And so we are not at Wake Forest certainly planning that, but it is an interesting, fun thought experiment to think about.
0: One issue that we're talking about on our campus is how faculty should administer final exams and grading and assessment. And there is a lot of concern over people trying to give timed exams and put other limits on students. What are your thoughts on how we should deal with assessing students as we move towards the end of the semester?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So there are a number of issues at work here. One is the challenges that students have at home and thinking about good universal design principles of giving students as much time as possible if it's not one of your outcomes. If doing things quickly is not one of your outcomes, that's an important thing to think about. Often also what's in the mind of people though is academic integrity. And so part of the concern of a number of faculty as well I'm usually proctoring it in person. So how do I give an exam in a way where I'm not gonna be there in person? And then that raises all sorts of interesting challenges associated with technology and the privacy concerns with those online proctoring systems. And so certainly we've been thinking a lot about this too and how to give advice. One of the first easy answers that anybody who's in pedagogy is going to say is come up with different design for your assessments. And I think absolutely we should start there. I don't need to give a timed exam in my course. There are ways I can write the question where I'm not worried about academic integrity issues. So there are certainly ways in which that's possible. But I do want to be mindful of my colleagues in intro languages or my colleagues in intro math where there are some recall outcomes that are really important for them. And so I think I always wanna just be careful to not say like, ah, how dare you have any recall outcomes because that's just not good pedagogy. I don't think that's necessarily true. So for those colleagues who have recall outcomes, it becomes a more interesting question. On our blog, we have a post on this that we could share if you're interested where my colleague, Anita McCauley, who's amazing, posted a flow chart of ways of thinking about, okay, if you have an exam, what are ways that you can think through how to do something differently? And one of the first parts of that flow chart that I really like is if you've already assessed it before, you may not need to assess it again. And so particularly for my colleagues in Spanish and other interlanguages, languages maybe they've already assessed their ability to conjugate verbs. Do you need to have it on the final in a cumulative way? That was just something that often has not been on the table and talked about, and I think it's worth saying. But beyond that, They might be somewhat different outcomes where they have to recall, but then explain why the verb was conjugated in that way. And so there are ways you can see whether they know it or not that they can't just get on the internet. And so being mindful of the challenges there, but also saying that let's try as hard as we can to come up with alternative assessments. Then the questions of how much time to give them, again, always come back to say like, is speed one of your outcomes? And almost always it's not. Almost always the reason there are timed exams is because they're in the timeframe of the class. So there's 75 minutes for them to sit in the class and take the exam, and that's why there's a limit. It's not because speed is actually an outcome. So now they actually have some more flexibility where they could give them more time, and the technological tools allow them to give them more time, and you can extend it as far as you want. I will often say it's instead of giving accommodations to a student to get extra time, give the whole class extra time, especially as they're learning new technology. If folks are still committed to traditional recall exam and worried about proctoring me, for example, at Wake Forest have not bought proctoring software and we're not using it for a variety of reasons. And so one of the things I recommend is if you absolutely are still committed to that, then you can do a synchronous session just like you would normally where they're taking the exam. And it's you, not some outside vendor or AI, et cetera, as you would in the classroom.
0: I'm not sure the problem, though, is just due to recall type exams because. I can speak from my own experience. Last week, I gave a test, which were all applications in econometrics and copies of the questions where there were many different variants. For one problem, there were seven variants. Most of those problems ended up on Chegg within about 15 minutes of the release of that. And answers were posted. Many of them were really bad answers, which helped make it really easy to find (laughs) these things. Yes. Yes. within less than an hour of the time the exam was released. So even when people are doing some problems, there are some issues. Or even when they're asked to write essays, there are people out there who are willing to provide those responses for them.
2: Oh, yes. And actually, that would be true in face-to-face classes, too, if you're not doing in-class essays. That's the one level of academic integrity that you just are never going to be able to catch if you pay somebody to write your essays for you or take your online exam. My background, incidentally, is as an ethicist, so I think a lot about questions of academic integrity. I always get mad at my students when I give this lecture, like, this is an ethics class, you need to take this seriously. But it is true that the empirical research on students' behavior in this regard is not heartening, let's put it that way. So I really appreciate all the literature about we need to trust our students. And there's a certain framework of what happens when we come into a course where we don't trust our students. But the empirical literature about what students admit to have done is really not heartening. And so I do think it's okay for us to think about these questions that you're thinking about, John, which is, okay, we're creating conditions where they're tempted. And that's something also we don't wanna do either is to create the conditions where students might be tempted, particularly for students who do have academic integrity, because then they're at a disadvantage if they choose not to engage in that kind of sharing of resources. What did you do, John? How did you address this?
0: I'm just dealing with it now. I was just grading those today. Yeah, so, it's So tough. right now I'm trying to identify the students and I'll be having conversations with them. Because there were so many varieties of questions out there, it's going to be pretty easy to identify which student did which. One interesting thing is someone took one of the answers and ran it through a paraphrasing tool so that the error terms in the equation became blunder terms in the equation, which was a pretty obvious paraphrase. It was interesting.
2: One of the things I've appreciated about this moment and having conversations like you and I are having right now is that it's encouraged some faculty to think in different ways about assessment. They have a standard way of assessing, this is the kind of thing that I've done for years, and now I have to think, oh, well, what could I possibly do differently? So one thing I just keep coming back to when I think about my own courses, there are challenges with this, there are problems with this, because it can be stressful for students. But I think oral exams are often some of the most effective ways to see whether a student knows something, is that you face-to-face, come to my office hour and let's talk about it. Tell me, and then I'll ask follow-up questions. That's a way to really tell whether a student knows something. And so you can still do that virtually, Now that it takes more time, especially if you have a big class. But thinking sort of outside of the box in that way of how can I verify is important. I have a couple of colleagues that are ethicists too who have devoted their life to this issue of academic integrity and it consumes them. In some ways, I understand that because it's a real violation of trust and it harms other students. But at the same time, too, I worry sometimes that it becomes so consuming for us that we lose track of all the other things that we should be thinking about with teaching. And so in this scenario where it's as crazy as it is, this is why I think the pass-fail designation that many of our schools have done have made things easier. Because we also know empirically that students are less likely to cheat when it's a pass-fail environment. I think the fact that many of our schools did optional. Pass-fail means that we're still in this wrinkle space where many of our students still wanna get the good grade. And so they're taking it for a grade and there's still temptations, but thinking of ways to make it less high stakes can be another way as well to reduce the likelihood of academic integrity. But it is going to be a challenge that there's no quick and easy solution for. I don't have your solution, John.
0: Well, I don't either Maybe, right somebody, now. maybe
2: somebody will that they can tell us to listen to this podcast.
0: One thing I am also doing is I have scaffolded assignments where they have to develop things from the very beginning up to their final projects. And there it's much more difficult for academic integrity problems to show up because they've been guided and getting feedback all the way through and that tends to reduce it. But when you're trying to test some other things that they're not using in their projects but might need to know in the future, there are challenges there.
1: I think another question that's come up quite a bit is... How to grade fairly just over the course of the semester, either this semester or future semester when there might be potential for another outbreak or something, when students are not in optimal work conditions, there's distractions, they might be sick, they might be dealing with family members who are sick. What do we do to make sure we're fair?
2: Again, coming back to me as an ethicist, I think a lot about academic integrity, but also about grades and what it means to be fair. And there's some people who would make the argument that there's certain notions of fairness that it's impossible to grade fairly, even in normal situations, especially if we're taking into account differences in student background, etc. that they're always going to be disadvantaged students in our classes. And so thinking about what a grade is is really important. And again, I've been heartened by the fact that these challenges have led so many of our faculty to start thinking in new ways about well, what the heck is a grade and how do I want to think about my grades? And I do think that one way of thinking about fair grades is actually not the model of, well, we need to take account of all these challenges that students have. One way of thinking about fair grades is that all the grade is is a measure of their performance. Now you could say that that's unjust for other reasons, but that it's at least I'm treating all the students the same. So this is a difference between quality and equity. So like we're treating them all equally, that's a measure of performance and mastery. So it's ensuring the integrity of the grade. But what's interesting is that most of us don't actually grade that way. Most of us have all sorts of other things in our grading scheme that are about behavior rather than about outcomes. So like you have to show up, you have to turn these in by this due date, you have to make sure you participate in class. And I have those in my typical grading scheme as well. And those we refer to as behavioral grades. And there are some educational theorists, as you two probably know, that would argue that you should never grade on behavior. You should never have behavioral grades. I think we could have a much longer discussion about this. I sort of think there are some good reasons for doing it in the context of higher ed, at least. But I think in this scenario, this is, if there's any scenario, and this is what I wrote about in one of our first blog posts, if there's any scenario where that would be unfair, the kind of behavioral grading, it would be this scenario, because some of our students did not choose this. They're in different time zones. They can't make it to our class. They have to deal with things at home. They were already in the midst of the course, too. So it's not as if we say, well, wait a year and come back to us when you're ready to take the class fully, because they were ready and we kicked them off campus. So there is all sorts of other complications here to the traditional model of like, well, wait until you're ready to take a class. They can't. They were already enrolled. They already paid. We're not giving them refunds. So in this context, being as accommodating as possible and making our courses as accessible as possible is really important. And some people have even argued, this is why we should give them all A's. Like some people have argued, not just pass fail, but actually all A's would be a better approach because to say like, look, you've done some work this semester, let's move on and give you all A's. Of course, that creates challenges for some of our colleagues are gonna say, what about the integrity of the grade for future courses? Is that fair to students who take it at a different time and don't get the A? So what I have argued for, but it's, again, not a perfect solution, is really dropping any behavioral grades that you have in these scenarios, at least for this context, and then really focusing on your mastery outcomes, but also being reasonable about the number of outcomes students can master in this scenario. So I actually dropped two outcomes from my course completely, completely dropped them. Now, that's easier for me to do in an intro religion class than it is in an intro calc class where they're prepared for the next course. So I always wanna be mindful of the differences of my colleagues in different disciplines. But if you are able to drop outcomes, you can drop them and still be rigorous with the outcomes you still have and being a little bit more compassionate and sensitive to your students. But doing mastery-based grading also can be helpful in the sense that for me, students get multiple shots at showing mastery. And so this would be like specifications grading if you wanna read more for the fall. So they have multiple opportunities to show. So if they have a bad week or assignment doesn't work well, they can try again. And as long as by the end of the semester, they've showed mastery, that's enough. It's not about averaging over the course of the semester. And so I already had a mastery based grading system in my course before I began this semester. So I wasn't recommending to people in this transition, oh, completely revise your grading scheme, that would be Not helpful. But if people are thinking about the fall, you know, it might be worth considering thinking about that. There are downsides to mastery-based grading too. So I don't want to act as if it's this like solution to everything, but it might be worth investigating a little bit and maybe incorporating some aspects of mastery-based grading into your teaching.
0: And we did have an earlier podcast episode on specifications grading with Linton Nielsen. Oh, wonderful. So we can refer people back to that (laughs) in our show notes as well.
2: Yeah, it's wonderful.
0: One of the issues with equity, as you mentioned, is that that problem became, I think, much more severe when students were suddenly sent home. On campuses, at least, there's some attempt to equalize that, that everyone gets access to high-speed internet. There's computer labs in most campuses spread out across campus. And we also don't have as much of an issue with food insecurity, at least for our on-campus students while they're there. Suddenly, when students are sent home, all those things disappear. And the issues of inequity, I think, become a whole lot more severe. And it's something, as you said, we need to be much more mindful of.
2: Yeah, one of the things that I really appreciated from Tom Tobin's book on universal design, he has a distinction. I don't actually know if it's his, it might be his, or it might just be generally in the literature on universal design, is distinguishing between access skills and target skills that you want your students to learn versus things they have to know or be able to do to access your material. What I really appreciate is it helps us think about something as simple as like having a good internet connection. That should not influence their grade because it's not one of our target skills. That's not what we want the grade to be reflecting, whether they had good internet connection. What we want the grade to be reflecting are the target skills that we're interested in. So I think the way to think about equity here is to focus on any place where things that are irrelevant to your course outcomes are getting in the way of students being able to learn and demonstrate their mastery. That's where you want to be lenient. That's where you want to come up with solutions. So for example, in my first year writing courses and English as a second language, if the thing that you're assessing is not grammar, the thing you're assessing is the way they develop their ideas the grammar can be a barrier so there are ways in which you don't want to grade on that because your target skills are really about developing ideas and so that's a sort of inclusive teaching practice that's really important in this scenario what are the things that make it difficult for the students to show up in our zoom session and how am i going to create alternatives for them one thing that we have suggested to our faculties if you're doing zoom sessions of course they should be optional but we also suggested recording it so the students who couldn't be there could watch it setting aside the problems with privacy of course we can talk about that too But there's another wrinkle there, too, which is that then that means some students get the interactive, quote unquote, face to face engagement, but the other students only get to watch recordings the whole time. So one of the things we've also said is for equity is also to think of other ways you can engage with those students who can't come to the Zoom sessions in a way that's asynchronous or that perhaps in a separate time without overly burdening the faculty member as well.
0: One of the things I've done is I've shared my cell phone number because all the students have cell phones. I've only done that (laughs) once or twice before in senior level classes, but this time I've done it with all of my classes. And I did get a phone call coming in right at the beginning when we started (laughs) recording, and I sent back a text saying, I'll contact you later. But that has helped because some students do have issues with being able to use Zoom.
1: And there's certainly tools that you can use to allow you to provide a number that's not your actual
2: cell phone number that students can still use the phone or texting to communicate.
0: You could use Google phone or you...
2: There's another one, though, that I've used in the past, maybe five or six years ago. It's used in K through 12 environments. Oh, remind. Remind is the one. Yeah, so I actually used that when I started to realize my students weren't checking email anymore. (laughs) I was like, this isn't going to work. Email's not going to work anymore. So I need to find some other way to connect. But that's great to be as accessible as possible to your students. But recognizing also that equity issues for us as faculty, some of my colleagues can do that more easily than other colleagues who have three kids at home, that they're homeschooling. And so that's a part of the challenge of this scenario as well Is not just what we know is good teaching practice, but also the labor implications for faculty too that are significant.
1: Following up on that, it's a really important consideration is the balance of fairness between both faculty and students because it's certainly not a situation that any of us signed up for, but we're all trying to manage. And it's really possible that we might be in a similar situation in the fall, maybe not exactly the same, and that we'll have a little warning, but it still could happen. So, how do we think about balancing the ability to pivot and make sure that we're thinking about the ability of teaching remotely without getting too much burden on faculty, but still have really good learning opportunities for students?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I think part of it is trying to think about efficient ways of development. So, I was, and you too may feel the same way that that week that we had to transition, I have never seen so much learning happening in a week and so much effort and work and Those of us in faculty development probably would never have dreamed, I mean, I don't know, maybe we would have dreamed that that would happen. But it was a really remarkable thing to see that faculty teaching other faculty can accelerate this in a way that often the model of one instructional designer with one faculty member for six months, that model, like that's how much we need? Well, maybe not now. Maybe we see that if you have to get it done, we'll get it done, and we can have one to many trainings, we can have faculty training each other, we can accelerate that in some ways, I think is important. But support is also important. So making sure that we're supporting faculty as they're learning what things they can do. And also what we often do in faculty development is talk about efficiencies. So it's not just we're gonna give you a million new pedagogies that we know work, but we're gonna give you a pedagogy that's actually gonna save you time. And that is really powerful with our faculty. And I think we can do the same thing here. So if we know that there's a faculty member who has children and has had a hard time with this transition because they can't do synchronous Zoom sessions, maybe we talk with them about other alternatives that might be easier for them, that they can prep in advance, that will make that transition easier without having to show up at a set time for those synchronous sessions with their children at home. So it doesn't solve it, but I do think we should work really hard to come up with the most efficient ways of making the best outcomes possible given the resources that we have. And I think adjusting resources, so we've talked about at Wake Forest outside of teaching and learning, some of our staff, their jobs are no longer really needed, so let's transition them to other places where we need support. And I think you could do the same thing with faculty as well. So maybe those who have the capability of teaching more or have taught online before, maybe they do more in the fall, but then they get a leave in the spring. There are ways in which you can move things around. Again, I'm not a dean, not making these decisions, but being creative about making sure to share the load equally, One question that has come up here, which is really interesting, is that for our faculty who teach more as part of their load, in some ways this is certainly harder on them than those who have a more balanced teaching and research pipeline because most of the effort here is in revising courses. Of course, if you have a lab that you have to shut down Certainly that's a lot of effort, but making sure we're mindful of the differential impact of this transition on our faculty and figuring out ways, not that we're gonna pay them for it, but figuring out ways that we might be able to balance the load moving forward once things go back to quote unquote normal, if they ever do go back to normal, knock on wood here.
1: I know one thing that I'm thinking about having small children, is that I'm thinking about all the things that require a little less cognitive load <laughs> that I'm doing right now while I have a toddler at home. And then when I think I'm gonna have daycare again, I'm gonna take advantage and do the things that actually require a lot more cognition. And I'm planning to do those at those times, including things like recordings or things like that that I know I might need to do just to have it in the wings just in case something happens in the fall.
2: I think this is an opportunity for all of us in higher ed to think creatively about how we distribute workload and how we think about the semester and timelines So even before this happened, our team read the book Deep Work and we were just talking about how to create space in our daily work to do intensive deep work. And one of the stories he tells in the book is about a faculty member who stacked his courses so that they were all in one semester. So you know, you have a two-two load or a three-three load and he decided to do six in one semester and then none in the next, which normally that sounds crazy, but there's a way in which that could be really helpful in certain contexts. And I think this is an opportunity to think about that. So those who are doing really intensive work building online courses, maybe they do a number of them because it scales, economies of scale. Like they do a number of them in the fall and then in the spring, they don't have to teach, You know, ways of thinking about how to balance this. And then it also would allow us as faculty developers to work with a smaller cohort of faculty rather than having to work with every single faculty member. Now, I don't imagine we'll do that, but it is an opportunity to think of these creative ways of making the workload more equitable as well.
0: And faculty as human beings tend to keep doing things the same way as they've always done them until there's some sort of disruption. This certainly has been a fairly substantial disruption. And I think a lot of people, as you said, have learned how to use new tools. And at least from what I've been hearing, many people now having discovered using Kahoot for quizzing, for example, or using Hypothesis. I've been giving workshops on Hypothesis for a while on campus, but not many people adopted it. All of a sudden, I'm getting all these questions about using Hypothesis, where people are using it for peer review of documents where they're using it in the LMS or more broadly. And I'm hoping that this will continue in the fall. What sort of reactions have you been getting from faculty who are trying some new tools?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's so many who have said, oh, wow, I can totally use this in my face-to-face classes. And that's really exciting to hear, that they're going to keep it. They're going to keep the strategies in their face-to-face courses, or if it needs to go remote, of course, as well as well as, oh, now I know how to use Canvas, so I'll actually use the gradebook. Things that are going to be nice for our students as well. Students have been asking for to have a place where they can see all their courses together. I think there was a kind of fear about these technologies in some ways. And now that they were forced to do that, it's not so hard. Now, some things are difficult. Some things are challenging associated with developing a really well-designed online course. But some of these little tools that they have to use in this environment can be helpful in what they're traditionally doing in their face-to-face courses. And I've seen many of them say they're going to do that, which is such a wonderful, thing to hear as well as pedagogical decisions they've had to make about assessment, about universal design, about academic integrity, grading, all the things they're learning there can also translate back to their courses too, even if we don't go remote.
1: And I think all those like crossover areas are ways that faculty can be more nimble. The word pivoting has been used a lot, but I think also being nimble, I'm using this tool or method and it works both online and in person. So it doesn't matter which modality I'm using is something to think about. I did want to just ask one last question related to grading and evaluation, and that's about motivating students to achieve our learning outcomes when there are so many other things in the world right now that we might be thinking about.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I often like to quote the former secretary of education that said, there's only three things that matter in education, motivation, motivation, and motivation. <laughs> so motivation is super, super important when think about how students learn. We can design the coolest evidence-informed course and design, but if students aren't motivated, it doesn't matter. So thinking about our student context and their motivation is really central to their learning, let alone how we're going to grade them. And so there are a number of things we know that lead to motivation. Sort of important is that students have a choice and that they have some agency or ownership over what's happening and so i know a lot of my colleagues at wake forest did this and i did as well Is when we made this transition is to ask the students so what's going on with you what's your preferences for how we restructure the course how would you like to learn moving forward and to keep in conversation with our students and what i did for example is now again i had the flexibility to do this in a religious studies course but i basically threw out that project at the end of my semester and so instead had time to say what do you want to read about What things about religion do you wanna know about? And so we've been reading about religion and violence, religion and COVID-19, just things that they're interested in. And that has allowed me to help a little bit with motivation is to just engage the students a little bit more, but it's tough. Typically, I think a lot of times we think of, there's carrots and sticks related to motivation. So you can certainly use sticks if you wanted to with grades, but that often has unintended negative consequences. So the more you can do carrots, which would mean thinking about what do they wanna learn, I also think that my students, at least at Wake Forest, really miss each other. It's a really communal place and they really miss each other. So creating opportunities for them to engage with each other, even if I'm not there. There are lots of little interesting activities I've seen people suggest where they get together and have video chats in groups and then record them for the professor. Creating opportunities for them to spend time with one another. They would just wanna spend time with each other, whether it's about learning or not. But if you sneak in the learning, that can be something that will motivate them too. But the reality is some of our students have too many other more important things on their plate, and we need to acknowledge that. And so I've tried to make my students feel that it's okay to say that, that I'm not disappointed in them if they don't do as well, or if they choose to take it pass fail, that like, look, this is just a religious studies class. It's one class among many. There are many other more important things happening right now. Yes, we want to help you learn if you want to learn, if you want to complete the course and get the credits you get, but we all know that there are other things that are taking our attention away right now, and that's understandable. And being sympathetic about that, I think, can also be motivating, because they're not demoralized if they don't do well. That's ah, okay. She understands. I'll give it a try next week.
1: I think that humanity piece is key, both for students and for faculty, and it makes people feel like they have a sense of belonging, but also that belonging is often motivating.
0: We always end with a question, what's next? Which is a question on everyone's mind right now.
2: I think for me, and maybe this is unique to me or my colleagues who are in teaching and learning centers and in faculty development, what's next is I want to have some time to reflect back on what I've learned about faculty from this transition and what I've learned about faculty development from this transition. And we talked a little bit about this in our earlier conversation, but I was really struck by what I saw in that week off that we had to learn how to improve. I mean, again, I need to spend more time thinking about this and what we've learned. But one of the things that was really striking to me was how important having a dedicated time to talk about teaching was. Like this is a week where you're gonna work on your classes, faculty. And often we talk about how do we motivate faculty do professional development we think about funding we think about course releases or making it enticing in other ways But my hypothesis that we learned through this transition is that time and dedicated time and a sort of cultural commitment to saying, we're gonna take two days to focus on our teaching. What if we did that every year? And there are some schools that have a faculty development day, but what if we took three days every year where everybody got together and talked about their teaching? And I think that's just one example of something that I would like to reflect on, but I think there are many other things that have happened in the past three weeks that can help inform the way we think about faculty development. And I'm really excited to think about that as we, as a center, think about how we work with faculty going forward.
0: Things like that Facebook group that you mentioned, and we have a similar one, has been really helpful in building more of a community than I've ever seen before.
2: Absolutely, yep, I completely agree.
0: Well, thank you. This has been fascinating and we wish you luck.
2: Thanks for inviting me, it was great to talk with you all. Yeah, thank you so much.